Welcome, everyone. Hi. Good evening. I'm Tracy Diamond. I'm from the Programs and Publications Department at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Thank you all for coming tonight for this special Shapiro lecture featuring Rita Gabus. We'll have a presentation from her followed by a Q&A. The Shapiro Lecture Series is sponsored by a bequest from Mrs. Gloria L. Shapiro. So before we start, I'm going to hand it over to the esteemed area writer, Daniel Mark Epstein. His most recent book is Dawn to Twilight, New and Selected Poems. And he will be reading at the Ivy Bookshop on November 18th. And coincidentally, the Ivy Bookshop is also our bookseller tonight. So without further ado, Daniel. Thank you, Tracy. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm grateful to my friend, uh, Honor Moore. Can you hear me? Good. I'm grateful to my friend, Honor Moore, uh, poet and biographer, uh, for introducing me to Rita Gabus. Um, and the honor of introducing Rita to this audience. Um, Ms. Gabus is the author of um, a collection of poems called The Wild Field, published in 1994, uh, and uh, personal essays that have been published in a book called Wanting a Child, published by FSG in, in 1998, and, uh, and in other essays, personal essays elsewhere. Uh, a graduate of the University of Massachusetts, uh, she received an MFA in creative writing um, at New York University, and she now teaches in the English department at Hunter College. Her honors include uh, Connecticut State Arts Fellowship in Poetry, uh, the Peter Reed Foundation Grant in Poetry, and a New York Foundation for the Arts Grant in Nonfiction. Uh, she's also been a fellow at the Yaddo Corporation. It used to be called Colony, but I don't think they call it a colony anymore. It's now a corporation. It's really uh, it's a place where artists go to, to work and meet other artists. and wonderful place uh, in Saratoga Springs. Is that right? Yeah. Um, she's also been a fellow um, at the Fine Arts uh, Works Center in Provincetown. Rita's talents uh, as a poet and a, per, a writer of personal essays are both on display in her new book, A Guest at the Shooter's Banquet, recently published by Bloomsbury. This book could not have been conceived without a powerful imagination, and this is the poet's gift. And it couldn't have been executed without a painstaking analysis of history and character. And this tends to be the province of historians, at least uh, in this century. All of us have family stories. Um, any of us may be beguiled into thinking that our family story stands near the center of history and that our story is, in fact, the source of a foundation myth by which all the world's history can be comprehended. Um, maybe this is true. 
if we are all descended from Adam and Eve and related to one another, any person's story told well enough might contain the seeds of a personal understanding. The case Rita Gabus is about to present to us is very disturbing. She was born of a Jewish father with roots in the Ukraine and a Catholic mother from Lithuania. She has discovered through a relentless investigation that the Catholic side of the family was involved in the murder of Jews in Lithuania, frighteningly close to her father's kinsmen during the Holocaust. Just look at the map. I suspect she will show us a map. Um, what is she to make of this? What, what are we to make of this? You're about to find out. Uh, no book worth writing is easy to write. Uh, but this particular book presents challenges rarely encountered by the most adventurous of writers. There are two stories to be told here. <clears throat> One is Rita's search for the historical truth about her family during the 20th century. And the other is about her personal journey as she awakens to this truth. And the literary challenge here, I can tell you, is to hold these two stories in a graceful balance. And she does it. The writers, um, the writers I personally most admire share two qualities. First of all, they work very hard. Uh, second, all of them have extraordinary courage. They'll pursue an idea... <clears throat> at any cost, in the face of incredible obstacles, no matter what anyone. They'll pursue an idea against incredible odds and against all obstacles, uh, no matter what anyone, even their friends and family, might think. The author of Guest at a Shooter's Banquet is just such a writer. Not the least of um, Rita Gabus's honors is that the Holocaust Museum will be establishing a special archive for the video interviews she did for this book. Ladies and gentlemen, Rita Gabus. So can everybody hear me? Um, I'll probably take out a lozenge and be very rude and, you know, um, have it, you know, chew on it during this uh, event. But I'm, I've been on book tour, and so I'm losing my voice every now and then, and I want to prevent that from happening. I want to thank um, our wonderful uh, poet in residence uh, for this evening for the wonderful introduction that he gave me and, and really urge you guys to read his work. It's beautiful. And to also say that it was uh, what it was an amazing coincidence um, after we were introduced through a mutual friend, Honor Moore, uh, and uh, uh, you know um, he was reading through my book, and 
he said, he sent me an email. I can't remember the exact words that you wrote, but something about how you knew my aunt Shirley and her late husband, George. And I was uh, flabbergasted. And of course, I immediately called my aunt Shirley and she said, oh, wonderful man, wonderful writer. And and I mark it just to say that one of the things about working on this book for five, six years was that there were so many times when, you know, I, I'd feel like the research had hit a dead end. I had to stop. I wasn't getting anywhere. And then some strange connection would occur and I would, I would continue on. And this is part of that. I, I see that that journey of connection is still, um, is still happening today. Uh, so I'm going to talk uh, a bit and show some images from my book, and then we'll have a question and answer period. Uh, if at any time you can't hear me, just shout out, please. Don't stand on ceremony. Uh, I want to say that I'm really honored to be reading here tonight at, at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Uh, it's such an amazing place, and before I go and read anywhere, I, I look it up. You know, I'm an avid Googler and Wikipedia person um, and was amazed to see the statistics of how readership has increased in this uh, library. It's amazing uh, how, how many people um, the library has managed to bring to books. Um, and since I love libraries and I love books and I'm a writer, I find that to be one of the noblest um, endeavors uh, that an institution can pursue. Uh, so, as I said, there are images in my book. There are actually over 70, uh, and I'll be showing a few tonight. Um, my hope is that you'll come away from our gathering, obviously wanting to know more about my book, but in addition, um, hopefully wanting to know more about your own lives and perhaps leaving the room thinking of stories uh, in your family that are as yet untold, uh, silences, things that you may not know about, doors that have not been opened, which leads me to a rather cliche metaphor, but here it is anyway. There's the unopened door, um, and it's the first photograph I'm going to share with you tonight. It's actually the old prison or jail door in a town called Svencionis in Lithuania, which is a country the size of New Jersey. Um, the new police station, the year I took this photo, uh, was still being built out right next door to the old. I stood in the weeds in front of the first floor windows of the long, unused part of the police station and saw the bars of the old prison cells. When I pushed open this door, it led up one flight of stairs to my Lithuanian Catholic grandfather's office when he was chief of the Saugumis, or security police, one of the deadliest collaborationist forces in the country during World War II. My grandfather was one of three Lithuanian commanders in the Svencionis region. And just to make things clear, so Svencionis is a town, but it's also a region that encompasses many towns. Um, uh, my grandfather shared a secretary who ran between his office and the office of uh, his, one of his colleagues, Jonas Machulevicius, who several years after my grandfather had fled the country, was extradited from France to Poland, tried and then execu phone, phone alert, 
and then executed for war crimes against the Polish nation. The entire Svencionis region was, prior to the Soviet occupation that predated the German occupation, was actually part of Poland. The Soviets, who came in before the Germans did, gifted the region, most of the region, to what was then called Belarusia. We know it today as Belarus. And then the Germans um, came in and granted the whole region to, to, the, to Lithuania, and it remains part of Lithuania today, though it has a very um, uh, dense population of Poles. Um, so how did I come to open this jailhouse door? I, all my life I'd known about my synalysis, and synalysis is the Lithuanian word for grandfather. I'd known about his heroism before the war, uh, when he fought as a partisan in the woods against the Russians. And I had been told many times about his bravery as the war was ending, when he commandeered a horse and cart and drove his older sister and his three children over mine bridges through bombings and fires and ultimately to safety in a hilltop town in Bavaria where they hid until the war was over. I had known my grandfather. I loved him. My own father was a reader, a philosopher, a very quiet man. My grandfather was loud, he fished, he hiked, and he adored me, and I adored him. But one fall afternoon in a cafe in New York with my mother, I followed what had developed uh, over, I would say, several years, a, prof a profound desire to know more about my mother's beginnings and the mark war left on her and her family, our family. And so I asked the stunningly obvious question, which was, what did Sinalis actually do during the war? And my mother said, all she said was, I have a lozenge here if you'd like one, for anyone, actually. Um, so I, I asked, what did Sinalis actually do during the war? My mother said he was in the police. And I said, under the SS? And she said, yes. Uh, and just a small note here, you know, I was, of the many feelings that ran through me, one was a sense of my own inhibition and ignorance, that it had taken me so long to ask, ask that question. Until that point, my mother's war story, which included the arrest of her mother, my babita, which is uh, Lithuanian for grandmother, uh, by the NKVD during Stalin's purges before the war, Babita's torture at the infamous Lubyanka prison where she was sent to the death cell again and again, a dank cement narrow waiting room, standing room only, where the condemned stood through the night before they would be shot the next morning, confess her interrogators demanded, uh, maybe some of you are familiar with the work of Anne Applebaum, the wonderful historian, and in the book, in her book, Gulag, she makes uh, n note, as many others have, of how much the Soviets loved confessions. Uh, but even when they pulled the skin off my Lithuanian grandmother's upper arms with pliers, when they pulled her, the skin off, she never revealed where her children were hiding in Lithuania or admitted that Mycenaeus was an anti-Russian partisan. She was tough. 
Ultimately, she was sent to the vast prison system of the Gulag for 15 years of hard labor. This was the story that had gradually, and I mean very gradually, won over the sympathies and compassion of my family matriarch, my Jewish grandmother, Rachel Trigub Gabus. This was the story about which we were to ask no questions, but I asked. Sitting with my mother in the cafe, a wash of feelings and both logical and illogical imperatives swept over me. I had to find out if Sinalis had hurt anyone. The face of my Jewish grandmother swam before me, almost as if she was with us or at the next table, close enough to hear. Um, and here she is um, on the far corner there is the young beauty she once was. Some years after her family fled the choreographed pogroms of the Ukraine, first for London, then for the United States. A feminist, a powerhouse, she divorced her husband, stopped keeping kosher, at which point her parents, my great-grandparents, Wolf and Clara, never entered her apartment in Philadelphia again. And here she is in her 80s. Uh, she lived to be 104 on her own. She was the family member I was closest to. In one instant in the cafe that day, I missed her more than I had ever missed her in my life. And at the same time, I was also grateful that she was dead because I, I truly believe that this information about Sinalis would have killed her. It was my Jewish grandmother who had declared how I should identify myself in our blended family. And I'm going to read a short section from my book that details that incident, which in many ways shaped my identity. I was raised in a secular household. We went to Mass without my father on holidays with the Lithuanian Catholic side of my family and celebrated the Jewish holidays with my father's side of the family. Yet when asked what I was, I always responded Jewish. Technically, I wasn't. My father had married a non-Jew. However, my Jewish grandmother, Rachel Trigub Gabus, believed her will and wishes superseded rabbinical law and conveyed to me her notion of how I was to think of myself. It was a hot day, and I was hanging out by the side of the local movie theater on the corner of Circuit Avenue and Oak Bluffs. A new poster was up advertising a movie I wanted to see. What was it? Jaws comes to mind, but it was probably something else. The sun was bright with that salty white glare that only happens near the ocean. I was wearing a tiny gold-plated cross around my neck that I'd bought at the town drugstore because my summer girlfriends in Oak Bluffs mainly Polish Catholic daughters of plumbers and rooming house owners all wore them. Absorbed in the movie, po movie poster, at first I didn't see my grandmother drive up in her used gold Impala. Ignoring the traffic, she put her car in park, threw open her door, and made it to the curb where I stood before I could completely register the fact of her. She reached for me, tore the little necklace with the cross off my neck and threw it on the sidewalk. I never want to see such a thing on your neck again, she said. I looked down at my ruined necklace and then back up at her red face. She was always fiery, loving, dominating, but I'd never seen her so angry before. You're Jewish, 
she spat, then turned, jumped back into the Impala, and sped away. My Lithuanian grandfather, my Sinalis, gave me a different message several years before that incident with my Jewish grandmother. He admonished me not to be like my father and told me that I should go to church. The notion that he thought ill of my father confounded and upset me. I was eight or nine years old, and when Sinalis made it clear that it was just my father's Jewish identity that was bad and that I should abandon, I remember feeling both shame and relief because it was just one part of my father Sinalis found unacceptable, not the whole man. I agreed to go to church knowing that I wouldn't, and I also knew that I would never tell my father what Sinalis had said to me. It would be many years before I recognized fully the anti-Semitism in my grandfather's remarks, in part because I repeated them to no one for such a long time. And, of course, in retrospect now, I, I wish I had told my father about this. And I know that we all have um, family stories that go that way. So here he is, my Lithuanian Catholic grandfather, Pranus Peronis, as a young man in the early 1920s when he was accepted into the Lithuanian Military Academy for officers' training. He was born in a two-room dirt floor shack in the small village of Ginvili, as were his 12 siblings, four of whom died in infancy. My grandfather was the first member of his family to go to secondary school. His father, Kazimieras, died from cancer when Sinalis was 17. Sinalis's mother, Barbara, from whom I take my middle name, was an old believer. Uh, Non-Jewish Lithuania had been, as some of you might know, largely a pagan culture before it became Catholic. And my great-grandmother, Barbara, was a spellcaster. And apparently, a snake bite cure was her specialty. Uh, more importantly for us tonight, she was the only relative my mother remembers expressing hard during the war. It's terrible what, what they're doing to the Jews, uh, my great-grandmother Barbara said, but my mother can't remember where uh, they were or when it was during the war that um, her grandmother said this. And then here is my grandfather approaching 50. Uh, this is the face, really, of the man that I knew as a, as a child, and also this is what he looked like, a, a facsimile of, uh, when he uh, received his position in Svencionis in late ju June or early July of 1941, after having been chief of the border police in a small town called Jaimelis on the Latvian border, um, and then going into hiding with other Lithuanian partisans against the Soviets. Of course, by that summer of 1941, his wife Ona, our Anna, who had been the Jaimelis town librarian, as it turned out, perhaps this is part of where I get my own love of libraries, she had been taken. The Germans were infamous for choosing commanders and shooters who had family who had been killed, tortured, or deported by the Soviets. They knew how to make use of rage, economic jealousy, devastation, and, of course, anti-Semitism. I 
treasure the photo of my grandfather as a young man, the one you saw before this. A portion of my work for the book through interviews and archival research, which included the discovery of many letters he wrote about his military aspirations early in his life, one to the president of Lithuania himself, which I found rather interesting and, and bold, um, was to try to reconstruct his passage from youth to manhood. How was I to think of my grandfather? How was I to love him or hate him? What had he done? As Richard Watson advised in his classic text on long, unsolved homicides, I was determined to not use my grandfather's proximity or lack thereof to the different slaughters in the region under his partial control to implicate or exonerate him. I set myself the task of double and triple sourcing any information I learned about his wartime activities and those of the men who surrounded him because, you know, how easy it would have been for me just to say, well, he's seven miles away from the uh, massacre of almost the entire Jewish population. Of course, he took part in it, but that wasn't enough for me. The word collaborator, uh, to follow up with that, is is to my ear and to my mind and heart a catch-all phrase. I wanted to know who my grandfather was before the war, and I wanted to, as my research progressed, never forget his humanness. For to my way of thinking, too often we refer to people as monsters, beasts, or animals in relation to their actions as accomplices or initiators of horrible crimes. And unfortunately, this abstracts the fact of the human capacity for violence and complicity. It prevents us from asking the deeper questions, not just about perpetrators, but about ourselves and the fate of the communities we are part of or are invested in from afar. So in a strange way, almost every question I asked about my grandfather, I mean, certainly not specifics about his um, part in actions against the non-combatants in the Svencionis region, but I ended up asking myself questions. You know, what does nationalism mean to me? What does my neighbor mean to me? My neighborhood, uh, actually I should have said, mean to me. I knew in the cafe with my mother that approximately 95% of the Jews of Lithuania had been killed primarily by Lithuanians during World War II. I knew, as was mentioned, that my paternal Jewish relatives lived just over the border from Svencionis. The question, did my grandfather harm anyone, never left me. The first year of my research about him was intensely private. I had absolutely no thought of writing a book. I only felt that if, if I didn't learn what my grandfather had or had not been party to, I would live with an unbearable ignorance, and perhaps even more importantly, I would never be able to make an amend to a possible victim or relative of a victim if indeed my grandfather had been an active part of the war machine in Lithuania and had indeed brought harm to someone. I didn't ex expect to find a paper trail on my grandfather. I didn't expect to spend five years traveling to Eastern Europe and Israel nor did I expect to sit one afternoon in a small apartment in Vilna, Lithuania, as a beautiful red-headed woman whose father had been killed partially 
upon my grandfather's order to say to me when I tried to apologize, what is your crime? I want to note that though my grandfather worked for the Gestapo, he hated them, as did many of the Lithuanians. Uh, and this is something that gets obscured, but it's important. And again, not because it exonerates him, but it, it reveals some of the complexity that goes hand in hand with uh, collaboration. Uh, most Lith Lithuanians viewed very briefly at the start of the occupation the Germans as untrustworthy but potential aids to autonomy, and in fact the Germans promised Lithuania autonomy for two weeks when they first entered the country, and then that uh, disappeared. Um, so still in those two weeks, Lithuanians like my grandfather believed uh, that they would have Lithuania back. Um, and also, the Germans were allies in their hatred of Bolshevik Jews, a conflation of communism and Judaism that statistics prove was utterly false in Lithuania. Shortly before the German invasion, some 600 or so Lithuanians outnumbered the roughly 300 Litvaks, or Lithuanian Jews, who were members of the Jewish um, Communist Party uh, in their shared home country. But this fact was quickly disregarded if it was even considered at all. And as one of the survivors from the Svencionis ghetto I interviewed over several years said to me, even as a child growing up, she was familiar with the phrase, kill a Jew, save Russia. So there was the myth of the communist Jew, while not a complete fiction. There were some Jews who were communists. But it was just one uh, equation uh, for those nationalists eager to rid Lithuania of the Jews, and as it would turn out in the region of Svencionis, the heart of the Polish population as well. Yet, as Yitzhak Arad, who's a survivor from Svencionis, um, and a scholar said to me in one of our several interviews, there would not be any Jews from Lithuania left had there not also been some Lithuanians, some Poles, and some Germans who aided uh, in some small way uh, members of the hunted population, even if that meant just simply choosing to turn aside and not report someone. So this next, uh, has anybody here been to Lithuania, just out of curiosity? Okay, one, two people. Uh, here's the beautiful town green as it exists today. I've been there every season of the year, and spring is, is gorgeous there, but it's a strange combination, when, when, at least when I go there, of taking in the beauty and also feeling the horror at the same time. Um, Today, there are 28 Jews left in the region. Uh, just out of view, you can't really see it, but if we were to walk that way, there would be the Catholic Church where my grandmother, uh, where my mother, sorry, went as a child. Um, and gone completely uh, are the synagogues, the Jewish shops, and stores, and perhaps most importantly, the Svencionis Ghetto which one survival, survivor, Romak uh, or Ramuld, Jakob Wexler Vashkinil told me, was built right across the street from the Catholic Church to remind the Jews that they killed Christ. 
Um, here is a much earlier view. It's this. It's exactly the same um, area of town. It was uh, the, the town square was the center of, of life in these um, places. And my interviewees, who were quite young at the time, remember the smell of fish and horses at the market, the overwhelming crowds, the smoke and the noise of people selling and trading. Some of them said, you know, as children, it frightened them. Uh, A large chaotic gathering is often frightening to a small child. And I've often thought of that terror uh, that can be easily soothed and the horrors that came after for which really there's nothing um, one can do or say to remove the terror uh, that would come down um, upon the lives of both the young and old in that region. Uh, A map was mentioned. Here's a German map. I'm going to show you an enlargement in a minute. Um, The Germans were amazing administrators, and here we see how they've divvied up Lithuania into different regions, and each region had its own set of uh, local commanders. Um, in this next frame, we see this Vincionis region. Um, it's it's a, an area of roughly 653 square uh, miles, um, along with this bloated administrative bureaucracy in place in Lithuania, almost from the beginning of the war, Uh, the redrawing of maps, the taking kill counts from shooting sites, the destroying of typewriter ribbons in burn boxes because the imprint of the letters on the ribbon might reveal something from a missive that was sent. Um, Yet, even with that bureaucratic machine in place, in regions like Svencionis, the few Germans who were present after the front moved through, and really there were only two or three, Uh, did not speak either Russian, Lithuanian, or Polish or Yiddish. So they were entirely dependent on translators. If you look through the local newspapers of the day, you see ad after ad um, asking for secretaries and translators to come to Svencionis. And so they were dependent on these outside translators, and they were also dependent on people like my grandfather, who did speak several languages, Um, And so that kind of language gap uh, brought its own layer of intrigue, rebellion, graft, and betrayal to all of wartime life there and in other areas of Lithuania. You know, when the lists were made up to collect certain members of the population, well, who knew where they lived? Not the Germans who just entered the area, but the people who'd been there longer or the people who spoke the language. Um, so in this region of Svencionis, two major actions took place. The first occurred in the fall of 1941. On Friday, September 26th, 8,000 Jews, almost all of the Jews of the Svencionis region, were rounded up, marched, or taken by cart to a sparsely wooded area known as Polygon, which means simply in Polish, in a rough translation, shooting range. It had been a barracks, a horse stable, and training ground for Polish officers when this region was still part of Poland. A few Jews managed to have themselves declared useful Jews. I'm sure many of you have heard that term before. 
and were allowed to remain in the ghettos that at that time were, were literally just the, the boards were being nailed into place. Some Jews bribed their way out of the roundup only to find themselves thrown back in a cart again and returned to Polygon, their valuables taken from them. The 8,000 were initially shoved into dark barracks and shacks and stables because the march to Polygon took place at night. Uh, they were close enough to the Jemena River so that in the morning when this mass of, of scared uh, family groups and individuals were let out of these, of these shacks and barracks, they could see the river, they could smell it, but anyone who attempted to quench their thirst or even wash up a bit would be shot or blown up by one of the mines that marked the perimeter of the makeshift camp. And um, I've interviewed several people who talked about the terrible thirst, you know, to see on top of the fear to see the water, but know that you can't get there. This action, first the gathering uh, and the incarceration. Does someone need a cough drop? Do you, does someone want to pass this back? No, 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 no. Do you both want one? Okay. I, I'm, I'm with you. Okay. So here too. Thank you. Anybody else? Cough drop break? Okay. Um, all right, so... The incarceration and the, and the gathering of this population was accomplished mainly by the local people. Um, missives went out demanding that anyone who owned a cart had to show up at a, at a particular town or village center at a certain time or risk being jailed or worse. So that's one layer of collaboration. And I've, I saw those missives and I read them and they truly were ordered to come or else um, harm would, would come to their families and or to, you know, if it was a single person with a cart and a horse, to that single person. Um, many people actually fled the region during the uh, massacre just so they wouldn't have to participate, but many did not as well. Um, so first were the carts in the town of Sancionis itself, where my grandfather was based, seven miles or so from Polygon, which itself is in new or in the Lithuanian Noe, or in the Polish Novosvencionis. Word had gone out from Novosvencionis to nearby villages that there was some money to be earned. So men like Petrus Godonis signed up to be a guard at Polygon for 16 German marks and a few pennies for the, the handful of days that that work was necessary. 300 men from Novosvencionis were contacted by the local Baltareshi, Balta means white in Lithuania. Uh, these were the white bands. They were known as such because of the white cloth they tied around their forearms. They were farmers, they were teachers, they were police who suddenly had a leftover Red Army gun stuck into their belts, who knocked on doors and told young and old men to assemble at a site near Polygon with a shovel on the night before the roundup. Um, a night of pouring rain, it turned out, and these were the pit diggers. At the same time, the shooters began to arrive. Uh, they were Lithuanians, my interviewees remembered, who entered people's houses along the small dirt roads outside of town 
and commandeered beds and food. They would simply walk in the door and say, we're here, we're going to eat your food and um, sleep in your beds. We're here to kill the Jews. A concession, a food concession was set up at the railroad station in the uh, center of Novos Vincionis where the shooters could go on their lunch break and eat. And so as I'm finding all of these things out, of course, I'm asking over and over again, where was my grandfather? Here, um, oh, this is an upside down now. So this is the, what, what had been the, what was the pit at Polygon. You can see there's ground, um, there's earth heaped up above it. You can't tell by this shot how long it goes, but it reaches as far as the eye can see and then makes an L shape. And uh, after the um, killing first occurred, there was no um, you know, mound of earth. Uh, there was a pit that just kept sinking and bones that just kept, with every rain, floating into farmer's fields, etc. cetera. Um, then this is what I've come to call the killing tree. Uh, it's uh, a tree against which infants and children were taken by the feet and heaved. Bullets passing through a young body posed a danger uh, for the shooters and truck drivers, carting first the men and then the women and children to their place along the pit. The workers might be hit by a stray bullet because the bullet passes so quickly through a young body. So the tree uh, protected the shooters, and it also allowed bullets to be saved. Overhead, uh, a German recon plane flew during the whole massacre, uh, perhaps taking film footage. I've looked for that footage for years in German archives without success. Um, on the ground, there in the different documents that I've uncovered, any, they're anywhere from four to 12 Germans on hand. The rest of the people who were at work, if you can call it that, were Lithuanians. And then this is a post-war photo right after the war of a group of young men. Some had been in Soviet prisoner of war camps during the war. Some had been fighting on the Russian front. Then they came back to Svencionis and found that all of their family members had been killed or to the Svencionis region. The first man here on my right is um, uh, Shalom Aron, and he was the husband of one of my interviewees. Um, and she gave me a, a rough date. She said this was taken between 1950 and 1960, but I don't think she really knew when it was taken, and it, to me it looks immediately post-war, actually. Um, So I'm going to read to you now a small, another small passage in the book drawn in part from archival material by the Kovno ghetto survivor, survivor Lieb Konashevsky. Is anybody familiar with Konashevsky's work? Okay. Uh, he was an engineer um, who post-war traveled to displaced persons camps like Bad Reichenhall and Feldafing, fulfilling a promise he made to himself and those who did not survive to meticulously gather testimony from the remaining Jews of Lithuania. And in the 297 pages of testimony he collected from the Svencionis region, I found the first mention of my grandfather in the context of Polygon. And I'm going to read just very briefly from that section now. Um, 
and and this uh, material uh, was at YIVO in New York, the Center for Jewish History. The librarian brings a large cardboard sleeve from the massive collection of testimonies. The 297 pages I'll end up copying, sometimes repetitious, when Konoshevsky summarizes to offer the reader the sweep, the scope. Still, each time I open what would be the white binder the pages ended up in, um, more of life appears, loan societies spring up, teenagers back float in a lake, an old smithy brackets a leg back to a chair, Shokar had an iron business, Yankel Zvirsky, a woolen boot factory, his four or five employees work the good wool and the not-so-good wool, the gloppy oil pressing and sizing, Whatever yarn goods came his way, Zvirsky saved the best for his granddaughter's dresses. I was a spoiled girl, she'll tell me, a year later in Israel, shrugging one shoulder, leaning slightly to that side as if listening to those who loved her just out of sight in the other room. I read the pages at Yivo quickly at first, skimming, skipping, stopping, and going back again, looking for Sinalis's name, not here, not here, not there. I'm about to turn away. I've gone through two-thirds of the material. My copy to take home will be ready in a week. I can retrieve it, read in privacy, read alone, but I keep going. Suddenly, there's a girl, and suddenly, there's my grandfather. The girl is the cousin of Fava Hayat, one of those whose testimonies Konoshevsky recorded on April 30, 1948, in the same region of Germany, where in a remote hilltop village, my grandfather and his children, having left Lithuania with the retreating Germans, waited for the war to end, watched the Allied bombers head for Munich, using the church steeple as a coordinate. The girl's name is Mira Lorraine. She's very pretty and didn't look Jewish, and she spoke Lithuanian perfectly, which was extremely rare um, uh, and becomes important later in, this, in, in the book. She's rounded up and taken the roughly 13 miles from Sekenai, her town in the Svencionis region, to Polygon with her family, with everyone she knows. On Wednesday, October 8th, when the shooting begins, a Lithuanian policeman she can plead to in his own language Maybe he's seen her before. Maybe he remembers her lovely features, covers her in a different kind of pit, a smaller pit uh, with branches in a gully. And then, quote, all day Mirala watched as groups of men and then groups of women and children were taken out of the compound to be shot. With the help of the policemen, she makes her way to the Vidzi ghetto, a far 50 miles from Polygon, and then eventually that ghetto is partially liquidated, those who could work were transferred to the ghetto in Svencionis, and that's where she um, meets her relatives. Uh, uh, when she gets to the Svencionis ghetto, Mira Lorraine described polygon, the sound when the children were killed, the terrible weeping and screaming like a slaughterhouse. She's 15 or 16, relentlessly determined to live. She leaves the relative safety of the Svencionis ghetto and goes to see the wife of a Lithuanian policeman who promised to obtain papers for her. Instead, the woman reported the matter to the Lithuanian Peronis, who was my grandfather. 
My grandfather summoned the head of the ghetto, Moshe Gordon, along with other ghetto elders, uh, members of the Jewish council. He demands that the girl be brought to him, that beautiful girl who speaks perfect Lithuanian. I can see him slamming his fist on the table. What was started at Polygon can't be undone. She won't come to his office and get a reprieve. She won't be put in a cell and sent out on a daily work detail. She'll be shot, as she should have been, on October 8, 1941, the third day of Sukkos, a time of joy and deliverance, when one dwells in a homemade hut under a roof of leaves. I see them in front of the synagogues all over New York City in the dark chill. They remind me of Missouri fields, of cropland starting the winter rest, of the moon and childhood. Bring her to me, my grandfather demands. She finds out she's been betrayed, takes off for Pastavai, another local town, another ghetto, and then is killed there when that ghetto was liquidated. I write her name in a small notebook, close a large file, and leave it behind me on the reading table. I don't stop to thank the archivist. I don't ask about the pickup time for my copies the following week. It's already dark when I leave. I think I'm weeping, but I can't tell. I can't feel anything, only late fall, and when I look up, rain. We're getting close to the end here, so just so you know. Um, The second major massacre occurred in the spring of 1942, when in retaliation for the ambush of one Joseph Beck, one of the two commanders, German commanders in Svencionis, whose forebears in Germany I was actually able to find and um, interview Um, during this time period after Beck was ambushed the Germans allowed the Lithuanians to unleash their wrath against the local Poles who were inexplicably blamed for Beck's death they had nothing to do with it Uh, and upwards of a thousand Polish non-combatants were slaughtered Obviously, I expended tremendous energy researching my grandfather's involvement in this war crime as well. And in the case of both massacres interviewed, often repeatedly, survivors of the Svencionis ghetto, of the killing of the Poles, of Polygon, as well as those who were eyewitnesses or near eyewitnesses to Polygon. Obviously, um, there were no people, there were no survivors um, from the polygon itself because they were all killed. Um, I was told for many years that there was no one left to talk to me. I was told that I was too late. And um, every time I went to Lithuania, I was in touch with and worked with people who had a very vested interest in gathering this research. So when they said, you're too late, there was, you know, I gave credence to that. But I was also, I'm also very stubborn by nature. So through a very circuitous route of travel and emails and phone calls, Israel, Poland, Lithuania, Poland, Israel, Germany, uh, I got an email one day that there were a handful of elderly people who had um, been near eyewitnesses or eyewitnesses to Polygon who were not part of the rounded-up population, and I flew over to interview them. And I want to close with one of those interviews in part because it's where the title of my book was ultimately discovered, and it also, to some small degree, addresses the various kinds of complicity and collaboration forced 
and otherwise that was rampant in the area. So this is from a chapter called Devil's Auction. We sit on a side porch. A strand of flypaper buzzes from the ceiling. There's the smell of a cat. The poet Zenon Tumalovic, 91 years old, holds a green notebook. Behind him, a red geranium adds its blaze to the August afternoon. To his left, his wife Jadwiga sits and often contributes, elaborates. Jadwiga is Polish. Zenon's father was Lithuanian, his mother Polish. I asked Zenon Tumalovic about his green notebook. I can see pages and pages of handwriting, some smaller, some larger. Poems? I ask him. No. He's writing out all the wars of the world, and they're dead. All the millions of people. I'm doing this obnoxious quotation thing. The ones who were suffering, the Jews, the Poles, and the Germans who didn't want to fight. The wars in North America, the wars from ancient times. And now here's uh, a transcription of, of Zenon. Uh, speaking. We have friends and they were forced to dig. Young men. Norbert Duzela, he died already. He told how it was. Not everyone was killed immediately. It was cries and movement of hands, terrible. We were afraid too. They were absolutely innocent. The ones who were shooters had a sign of a corpse and a skull on their uniforms. Everyone, everything was organized beforehand. It was the ditch, Local people were forced to dig in the evening before. People in the town knew. The ones who dug told to their families. They explained to everybody, and they knew that the Jews were over there. And it was the local people who were covering the ditches, a function like some people were bringing the dirt. Others were putting in corpses, like a conveyor, and they were putting lime on. I was born in January of 1923. I was 19. When they were over with the shootings, all the shooters went to Svencionis and they were singing Lithuanian songs. They were very joyful. They were drunk beforehand. In Svencionis, there was a big long table in the open air with food like a holiday. The mood was supported by the orchestra. They got drunker. Over here, there were two wooden synagogues and these were used as warehouses. All the belongings of the Jews were put over there. And afterward, there was a sale, an auction. Who would give these marks? I'm not standing in line. I'm a partisan. People were very excited. It was after the killing, so everyone knew. Later, they figured out the best things had already been taken. Tumalovic's face and the face of his wife blend together, both thin, scrappy, like two birds, two ancient storks. When he talks about the two synagogues where the auctions were held, he gestures beyond the screen where a field runs between small houses and some scrub and working land, wooden synagogues. Sweat runs into my eyes. I can see it, the press of the crowd for a pair of socks, poverty shoes with the front soles flapping open in want of stitching, in want of the feet of their original owner. When I rise to leave, Tumalovic offers me his green notebook, his record of horror, his list of what it is to be human. Something is lost in translation. Since I'm writing a book, it seems he thinks I can take his list into the world with me. I don't take it. And I'm not sure if he didn't want me to just sit with it for a while and go through the pages, different wars and names separated by a line pressed hard into the paper, his project, his burden, his still. Thank you.
Thank you again, Rita. Um, we have time for a couple questions. So this is being recorded for podcasting. So if you have a question, raise your hand, and I will come bring over the microphone. It's really a two-part question. What do you consider yourself, and how do you feel now in retrospect about your grandfather? Those are great questions. Um, So I'll go back to that scene with my grandmother and say that I grew up uh, identifying with the Jewish side of my family. And actually, I, I left home at quite a young age and ended up, by a fluke, getting a scholarship to a boarding school that had been created by largely by Jews who were who had fled uh, Germany and Czechoslovakia um, right at the start of the war, and so there I was, you know, in this strange turn of events, and I felt very at home there. Um, my husband's Jewish. We we live a Jewish life, and to be honest, I'd often thought about formally converting. But after I found out about my grandfather, I decided I would not do that. I felt like it was important for me to claim my dual identity, in part to keep telling this story, um, to own to own part of my history. Um, and then, I'm sorry, your second question? Oh, about my grandfather now. So, you know... Uh, I, as I said, I loved him. He was a loud, uh, joyful man. Uh, he seemed to me to be a very gentle soul, although there were many nights where he was banging his fist on the table uh, after too many glasses of the homemade uh, cherry wine that he made, talking about the lost great Lithuania, um, his nationalism. I came to see him as, as a very calculating man. I came to see him as someone who uh, moved into any kind of situation and adapted to it. So, for instance, he brought his anti-Semitism into Svencionis with him and into his role as chief of security police. When he moved to the United States, he was able to leave all that behind him, as many people did, and do a, do a turnaround become someone else, and uh, that, that takes a certain strange talent. It's an odd word to use, but I, I see him now as being um, someone who was remarkable in his capacity to adapt, and of course my own feelings about him have, have changed quite a bit. Um, in part, I'm older, so our feelings change about our elders as we get older, but also from the information that I gathered about him. Yes. Uh, after I ask my questions, I hope you'll tell us the, about the love story between your father and your mother. That must be fascinating how that happened and what everybody in the families thought about it. But anyway, my question is the following. Was your grandfather working with the Einsatzgruppen as they came across, because they were coming across Lithuania in September or October, uh, the mobile killing squads. Uh, the, the, the question I have is, he's, the way you're describing him, sometimes, first you said 
he hated the Nazis. Uh, do you have proof of that? And I'd like to know what it was. And second question is the way that he came into the States, he must have lied on his form. He did. And uh, since he's a calculating person, to be very honest, how could you not view him in any other way than just as an outright Nazi? Well, because he wasn't a Nazi. I mean, if you're, if you're going to be specific about it, that term to me doesn't doesn't mean, you know, it's, it's an abstract, abstraction. It, there, there were people who were in the Nazi party who um, helped Jews. Um, most Lithuanians, as I say, hated the Germans because they wanted autonomy. That did not mean that they had love for the Jews. Um, that did not mean that they didn't um, sign up to be shooters. And, and that goes back to one of your other um, comments. Um, there's, there's, there are different stories about how these shootings took place. In my region of study, it, it, was, the lo- it was a local shooting squad that came up of Lithuanians, not the German roving squad, uh, which um, is cited often as being the main killing force in the region. Um, you know, to say my grandfather is a collaborator and did such and so very specifically is for me as powerful as saying, well, he's a Nazi. He, but he wasn't. He wasn't a member of the Nazi party. He was a Lithuanian Catholic collaborator, and he collaborated for his own reasons. Um, you know, so I'm not quite sure how you're using the word Nazi. Oh well, yes, yeah. Right. I mean, I certainly, I, I certainly, yeah, certainly. But I, I, you know, in doing my research, there's very specific meanings to these different labels, and I think, I think they're very important because if we don't look closely and carefully. Again, you know, there's a, my Aunt Shirley, um, when I called her and first told her about Sinalis, said, oh, they were all Nazis. We, we all knew it. And, you know, then we went and had, had many conversations after that. But she retracted it later as being too general a statement. Not that my grandfather wasn't uh, murderous and uh, nationalistic and... Uh, you know, a, a rabid anti-Semite he was, but no, he was not a member of the Nazi party. Um, you know, Lithuanians get the privilege or the poison of uh, living according to the truth of their own history, which, which is different from what happened in Germany or what happened in Denmark or what happened in the Ukraine. Um, we have time... For one more. I'll talk to you after about that. Okay. We will have time. We want to leave time to talk after as well. One more question. Okay. Well, um, in keeping with what you just said, right. uh, my mother was from Vilna. Okay. All my life I've heard her talk about you know, the war, and she lost many, many members of her family. Right. Panari, which was the killing right. of Vilna. And um, she always talked about how the Lithuanians were much bigger players than the Germans were. She saw right. a few Germans that she saw, right. lots and lots of Lithuanians, and she thought that they were enormously anti-Semitic, and they were the ones that really 
Yes. Yes. It's amazing. Leap Leap Konashevsky. Right. Maybe he might have he might have interviewed them. Talk to me afterwards, and I'll give you the the way to do it. And let me let me just go back quickly to 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 this comment because it what you just said kind of ties back to this notion of well, isn't he for all intents and purposes a Nazi? You know, again, there were the ratio of Germans to Lithuanians, except in the bureaucratic mode, and particularly in Vilna, was you know very heavily. Um, uh, slated on the Lithuanian side, and it's really important to remember that in that country, it was not um, the Germans who were doing the majority of the killing, the, the German Nazis. Um, it was collaborators. Um, and often, they, as I said, they hated the Germans. They wanted them to get out of their country, but they had no love for the Jews either, or for that matter, the Poles. Um, one of my young researchers who just got her visa and is now living with me um, said um, we were interviewing uh, a historian, Arunas Bubnas in Lithuania, who I've spoken to many times, and he said a genuine nationalist hates everyone. And there's some truth to that. Can I just add one more thing? I know it's just... Oh, okay. I, I, I wonder what the Lithuanians today, are they teaching about this at the it's a good question. So I'm actually, I'm actually going to be speaking at the uh, Lithuanian Embassy in D.C. on November 19th, I think. Um, and the Lithuanian ambassador to the U.S. is going to be there, along with members of the, um, along with some representatives from the Holocaust Museum. The first time I went to that embassy, uh, it was to, it was for a, a book party. A wonderful young adult writer writing about a young girl, young Lithuanian girl who gets sent to um, the Gulag, non-Jewish. Not one mention was made of the slaughter of the Jews the whole evening, and I was sitting there with these the first paper material, you know, the first bit of the paper trail that I'd found from the Holocaust Museum in my bag, watching this slideshow of the horrors of what Stalin had done. And, you know, it was a, it was a biz- totally bizarre experience because no one said a word about what had happened to the Jewish population. And, you know, now, and it's certainly not because of my book, but the fact that I'm going to be at the embassy presenting some of this material is evidence that things are starting to change slowly. And to a large degree, that is um, uh, part of, of the wonderful work that YIVO, the Center for Jewish History, has done. Um, and also, it has to do with the European Union and Lithuanians wanting to move forward and also, you know, both genuinely, but also appear to be um, um, more willing now to own the past, but there's still a lot of bitterness um, towards the West and a sense that nobody here really gets 
what they suffered under Stalin. So it's complicated. Thank you, Rita, for using your... Thank you. Thank you. Um, I just want to say one more thing, too. I, I you know... I always when, I, when I've been giving these talks, people have questions, and if something occurs to you later, feel free to go to my website. It's www.ritagabus.com, uh, and you can send me a question or a query through there, and I'll do my best to answer it. Sure. It's just my name. I actually have a card I think I can, I can give you. Thanks, everybody. Great questions. Thank you.